Today, I'd like you to turn with me to the 10th chapter of the book of Acts. Pastor George finds the greatest challenge to the early church, and it's not what you would expect. This has profound implications for our life today. Let's listen together. I spent hours last week as a peeping Tom. I looked in on the United Methodist Church's General Assembly meeting of uh, February 2019 as they were deciding what to do about the challenge of the full inclusion of LGBTQ plus people. Uh, this conversation has gone on in that denomination for 40 years. But this was a special meeting of the assembly just to discuss the topic of human sexuality and to try to settle this issue within their denomination. Yes, they posted the meetings from gavel to gavel for all to see. It was kind of like reality TV. It was amazing to hear passionate arguments on all sides. The traditionalists who advocated following the usual way in which biblical passages have been used to affirm that homosexuality is a sin that a person has to repent of before being fully accepted in the church. And then the progressives who wore rainbow-colored stoles to express their position that the Bible has to be reinterpreted in the modern world to include people of gender, different gender identities in God's offer of grace. And then there were the conciliators who were desperately trying to hold the denomination together under a large umbrella of beliefs. I was impressed by the genuine expressions of personal Christian faith that punctuated the conversations from all sides. I think I went into this with an evangelical Baptist prejudice that Methodists were theologically liberal and they would treat this issue casually, but I was wrong. They were fervently sincere. There were passionate arguments based on the Bible from both sides. And at several points, the discussion was interrupted by the moderator by a time of prayer. In the end, the body of delegates voted to affirm the traditional church position that gender identifications other than those based on male-female sexual attraction are choices that people make, moral choices, and that homosexual practices are sinful. The vote was about 55% to 45%, with the overseas, mostly African delegates, making the difference. The American vote was more 70 to 30 in the more progressive direction. Of course, that didn't settle things because the denomination in the end is going to split over this issue. And that's amazing because the Methodist Church has not split over anything except slavery during the Civil War. Otherwise, they've been able to keep their tent broad and cover different theological perspectives and attitudes towards social issue. I thought, how different our journey at ABC has been. First of all, Baptist churches aren't under any kind of top-down decision-making structure. In the Catholic Church and other Episcopalian-oriented denominations, there is a hierarchy that is a clergy hierarchy. 
in the Methodist Church, there is a general association which meets every four years, made up of clergy and laity, and they make the decisions for the denomination. But uniquely, maybe not uniquely, but kind of maverick style, Baptist churches aren't under any top-down decision-making structure. Each church congregation is independent, directly accountable to God. This historically can be a very good thing or a very bad thing because congregations' connections with God uh, sometimes are tenuous. We do belong to a denomination, uh, but this is voluntary and it's something we do with like-minded Baptist congregations, each of which is an independent church. So this is different from the Methodist style. Over the past decades, we at ABC have wrestled with the fact that society's attitudes and practices have trained, changed dramatically. It's not just in this issue, but in many issues, and particularly ones resolving around issues of marriage and family life. Uh, we have found society's attitudes and practices changing dramatically. So we kept going back and reevaluating the way we apply the Bible to real life situations. And uh, we acknowledge, for instance, that marriage for a lifetime, which was a given a couple of generations ago, in our society is becoming less and less common, that divorce and remarriage were more the rule than the exception, even among church families. In past generations, the Bible's strong statements of opposition to remarriage of a divorced person would have kept ABC's pastor from performing such marriages. And they would be seen, these people who are remarried after divorce, as second class or compromised members of the body. But when we look at the Bible through modern eyes, in our real-life situation, we could see that some of those legal prohibitions were made in response to issues of particular time and place. And so we changed our policy over the years to match the reality we live in. Today, many ABC families are blended as a result of the parents' previous marriages, and we don't even think about who has been or who hasn't been divorced and remarried when we talk to people in the church. We've just kind of accepted that change. Over the same period of the time, uh, the people of ABC have also experienced a quiet journey in our attitude about the issue of homosexuality and the related LGBTQ issues that have emerged in society and become more and more something we have to deal with. It's been obvious that the society we live in has moved rapidly away from the view that only people who see themselves as distinctly male and female are worthy of being fully accepted as healthy, positive persons. How complete this transformation has been can be seen anytime we turn on a television set or open a magazine. Uh, Same-sex couples are confronting us all the time. We don't even seem to be aware of it most of the time. The 2015 Supreme Court decision 
that requires same-sex marriages to be recognized in every state is clear evidence that this change is locked into our society. But at ABC, as a Bible-affirming church, should we be standing against social changes? That seems to be the position of many churches. Well, as we review 2,000 years of church history, we've seen that the church has always adapted to changes in society, though usually 22 years and after struggling against the changes for a long time. There are many issues that were critical uh, a thousand years ago that we don't even think about today. But with this issue, what made a difference for us as a congregation was that we could not treat this problem as something that they, the world, was facing. It was our own issue. Our children were growing up with questions about their gender identity, and we didn't have a good answer. My own son emerged as gay in his early teens, and we had to figure out how to deal with this as a family. Then others in the midst of our fellowship had similar family experiences. They began to feel free to share with others in the fellowship. Over the past few years, ABC has quietly but determinedly moved to a position of full inclusion and affirmation of people whose gender identity is not limited to the traditional male or female roles. That is, we do not simply accept LGBTQ plus individuals into our worshiping fellowship. We affirm their right to full inclusion with no limits because of how they identify. This has not come easily. ABC's pastors have done serious Bible study, reading literature on passages that are often quoted on these issues across the spectrum of ideas and have shared these insights with the deacons and other church leaders. One of our adult Sunday school classes spent several months reviewing Bible, biblical teachings and how they apply in various situations with regard to human sexuality. And we would be glad, the pastors would be glad to discuss the Bible passages that are usually used uh, in this uh, conversation with anyone who calls. And we have done some writing on this as well. A couple of years ago, a Facebook conversation between ABCers brought these changes to the surface. This resulted in a specially called meeting just before COVID hit us at which more than 50 ABCers interacted with a facilitator and did some very honest sharing. We own this issue as our issue and one that as a church we wanted to engage. And the consensus was that we wanted to be a church for all. That's who we want to be. Seeing the United Methodist journey alongside our journey and that which many other churches and denominations are going through, I wonder if something like this has happened before. Well, of course, there's a dramatic example 
in the book of Acts that we've been studying. We've been looking at the newborn church and how this church came into being. Our sermon titles in the series so far have been waiting. That was the first thing the church was asked to do. And then spirit infilling with that wonderful event on the day of Pentecost. And then guidance in all the ways that the spirit has led the church. Then worship and then the life of the body outside of worship in addition to worship. And then outreach. And we spent the last two weeks led by Pastor Connie in a discussion of evangelism. Today, we're looking at the next step, and it was a big step in the church's journey, and that was embracing others, embracing others who are not like us. Pastor Connie's last two sermons, in a sense, were part one and part two of evangelism, but today, in talking about embracing others, we're talking about evangelism part three. How do we reach out to the people who are not natural for us to engage as our friends and potential partners in fellowship in the body of Christ. Well, Connie asked us to think last week about who can you love this week? Tell me whom God sent for you to love this week. That was her challenge. And the assumption would be it would be somebody hard to love. Unfortunately, the church's attitude in history has often been or seemed like, who can we reject this week? Evangelism, or telling the good news, is natural in our circle of nearness and the people we're comfortable with. But for the newborn church, God wanted them to reach out to the whole world and he kept kicking them out of their circle of nearness because the issue for them was how could they reach out to people they had been taught to be separate from, specifically the Gentiles. And if we feel in our traditional church setting that there are biblical barriers to including LGBTQ people, in a church fellowship. This is nothing compared to the biblical barriers the early Christians felt when they thought about Gentile inclusion. But God kept pushing them there, past the barriers, to reach out whether they liked it or not. It was not a straight line evangelistic strategy, but it was a spiral of fits and starts by which God forced them outside of their comfort zone. Let's follow the spiral, with, the spiral with a review of the book of Acts. Now, I'm going to go fast, and I would advise you to have a Bible in front of you so that you get the flow through the pages of Acts. And I'll tell you important highlights of the spiraling outward that God caused to happen in his church. We're going to be in, begin in Acts chapter 8. Now, remember, Stephen, one of the first deacons, became the first martyr in the life of the church. And he was stoned to death and he gave a wonderful speech outlining his understanding of the good news of salvation for his people. And then uh, after his stoning, the persecution began against the whole church, Acts 8.1. That day a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles 
were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. What a tragedy. Just when they were coming together, they were scattered all over the countryside. That wasn't a, a, a tragedy. That was a strategy, but it was God's strategy. Note, throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria, this week in the Messenger, I went through passages about the Jewish prejudice against Samaritans, who were really their closest cousins in the world. But even these people they had trouble being with. They looked down and, and pointed out the differences between them rather than the similarities and found a way to look down their noses at the Samaritans. But here they were scattered among the Samaritans. In verse 4, And those who were scattered went place to place, proclaiming the word. And then Philip, one of the first deacons in Acts 6, went down to the city of Samaria, the capital city, and proclaimed the Messiah to them. This people, the outcast people, Philip, with the insight of the Holy Spirit, just believed they deserved to hear the good news of the gospel. And then, 25, inner circle people, Peter and John, had testified and spoken the word of the Lord. They returned to Jerusalem, proclaiming the good news to many villages of the Samaritans. Here they were, preaching from village to village among these foreigners. Through the force of persecution, the believers spiraled outside of their circle of nearness to embrace the Samaritans in fellowship. And then huh, they couldn't rest. 26, verse 26, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, get up and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. We know about the Gaza Strip and the recent bombings between Jerusalem, between Israel and the Palestinians. That area is as far from Jerusalem as it's possible within Israel. On the road down toward Egypt, that area then was considered a kind of an outcast area. So Philip got up and went. Now, if that were not bad enough, what did he run into? He ran into an Ethiopian eunuch, verse 27. Two strikes against this man. He was an Ethiopian, that's he's from Africa. Presumably he's black. And he was a eunuch, which means he was not traditionally male or female, but either through birth or through uh, intentional uh, operation, he was rendered into a eunuch. So here was a man who could not worship in traditional Judaism because of who he was. And here was Philip being directed to go to him. Now, this was the beginning of the spiral outward that God kept causing for the Israelites as they were forced out of their circle of nearness. There were some things that made this happen that were prepared by God. One, there was the diaspora, the Jewish community spread all over the uh, Middle Eastern world, Europe, all into Asia Minor and into the Middle East. Every city virtually had a Jewish community. And among those Jews, there were God-fearers. Now that little name, and, and this man, the Ethiopian eunuch, is one of those God-fearers because he went to Jerusalem to worship the God of the Israelites, even though he wasn't a Jew. He was what the Jews called a half-proselyte. He was a Gentile who was attracted to Judaism, but not ready to go all the way. And then 
we read that Philip gave him the gospel, that he accepted the Lord, and that he gave a testimony of faith and was baptized. Wow, this is really spiraling out of control. Then in verse 40, Philip goes to Azotus, which is on the coast, down to Caesarea, the coastal towns. And then in Acts 9, we find the apostle Saul. Now Saul had been a witness to Stephen's martyr, martyrdom, and he, he went on his own initiative because he heard there were a group of Christians trying to reach the Jews in Damascus, Syria. Damascus, now that's the opposite direction from Gaza and Ethiopia, but it's in another country, another nation altogether in the land that we call Syria. And so that's where Paul went, and it's on the road to this foreign country that Paul was converted and accepted the Lord and became the first great missionary. And he went to the, after his conversion, he went to the synagogues, it says in uh, verse 20 of chapter uh, chapter 9, that immediately he began to pro proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. And then Barnabas sent him to Tarsus. Now, Tarsus is where Paul had grown up as a Jew, but it's in Asia Minor, what we now call Turkey. Man, they're spinning all over the place. And they're doing that because God is forcing them. Verse 31, meanwhile, the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, now it seemed natural by this time for them to include Samaria as part of the home church. They had embraced the Samaritans. Then in Acts 10, we find Cornelius being the subject. And he is a centurion in the Roman army, uh, a ruler, or a, 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 a general in the Roman army in the Italian cohort. So he was actually from Rome, and he too was a God-fearer attracted to Judaism. Cornelius had a vision that someone was going to come named Peter. Peter, meanwhile, had another vision. And the vision was that famous dream of the sheet being lowered down from heaven and all kinds of tip, traditionally unclean animals that were not kosher and could not be eaten were lowered down to Peter, who was very hungry. And the Lord said, uh, kill and eat. And Peter said, I can't. They're not kosher. I can't do that. And the Lord taught him through this that everyone was kosher. And Peter said in verse 34 of chapter 10, I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You don't know what a big step that was for this man, Peter, who had grown up as an Orthodox Jew, just as Paul had. Verse 44 following tells us about the coming of the Holy Spirit falling on even the Gentiles. In Acts 11, the spiraling continues. The apostles, the believers, uh, came back and reported that the Gentiles had accepted the word of God. And back in Jerusalem, some of the Jewish believers who had been brought up Orthodox Jews said, you can't do that. Why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? In uh, 1 through 3. And then... This is just the beginning of the long struggle of opposition from within the Jewish party in the church against the Gentiles being accepted 
as Christians without becoming Jews. That was the big challenge. Circumcision was symbolic, but there were all kinds of other laws that they were being asked to submit to. In verse 19, those who were scattered because of the persecution that took place over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. And they spoke to no one except the Jews. But then the Lord kept kicking them out of that. And in verse 20, they began to speak to the Hellenists, who were Jews who had sim assimilated into uh, the uh, pagan society, but they still were Jews, and they began to preach to them, and a large number of them came to the Lord. And then Barnabas was sent to Antioch, which, remember, was a foreign city in Syria, and he was sent down to check this out. Is this kosher? And, you know, and Barnabas went, and he validated that what was happening was really a work of the Holy Spirit. And then um, the vision of the Church of Antioch increased as Paul and Barnabas ministered there for a year. And the church matured and became the center, the headquarters of the church, which moved from Jerusalem to Syria. And then in verse 2 of chapter 13, uh, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me. Once again, God is kicking them outward to spiral out. Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I had called them. And this was the beginning of the missionary journeys that went all over the Near East and on ultimately into Europe. So being sent out, verse 4 of the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, a port city in Syria, and they went from there and sailed to Cyprus, which was off the coast of Turkey, an island. And then they went from Cyprus, verse 13, to Perga in Pamphylia, and Perga was a coast city on the south of Turkey, and they went up the river, and there was a Jewish community in a town called Antioch, another Antioch. They were both named after a Roman emperor. This Antioch was in Pisidia. So that was in inland Asia Minor, which we now call Turkey. Here they were, spiraling, spiraling. You would say out of control? No, they were under God's control. Verse 46, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly after the Church of Antioch Pisidia experience and said it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken first to you, speaking to a Jewish congregation, since you reject it and judge yourselves to be unworthy of eternal life, we are now turning to the Gentiles. That was a conscious and powerful decision, and they never turned back. However, the criticism continued, and we get to a very important moment recorded in Acts chapter 15 in what is known as the Jerusalem Council, the people who opposed the conversion of Gentiles unconditionally went before the church and a council was called among the leaders of the church. Paul and Barnabas went. Um, there's a book I ran across by a Roman Catholic scholar, Michael Knowles, in 2019. It's called The Meeting That Changed the World. And it's about this Jerusalem Council. And that title, The Meeting That Changed the World, made me think of the Methodist General Assembly meeting I had been watching, or of our ABC meeting last March, and how we as a church would respond, respond to God's signal that he wants us to spiral out.
to people who stretch our views on human sexuality? Well, this wonderful council began with accusations. The believers who were from the more rigorous sect said it's necessary for them to be circumcised and ordered to keep the law of Moses. That's their argument. In order to believe in Jesus and to be his followers, you have to be circumcised officially, become a Jew, and keep the law of Moses. And then Peter, a leader of the original disciples, stood up and said, he testified to how God had kicked him out and made him go to the Gentiles. And he said, now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear. Even we can't fulfill the law. On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Wow. We will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Not only will they not be saved by keeping the law, we won't either. What a testimony. God's kicking them out into the world was the way Peter came to this radical view of salvation by grace. And then they affirmed this. James stood up and uh, told them that was the decision of the church that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God. There are some interesting conditions put on this. We're not going to have time to go through this, but I'd be glad to discuss that with anybody who's interested. And the rest of the book of Acts, God keeps on kicking them out. In Acts 16, we have what is called the Macedonian call, in which Paul is confronted in a dream with a man from Macedon, which meant going across the channel from Turkey into Greece, and that meant going from Asia into Europe. That was the call, and Paul followed the call, and so did the gospel, and so did the church. And Paul's conclusion after all of this in Acts 28, 28, one of the last verses in this great book, let it be known to you then that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. The spiral continued after the New Testament closed. We, we mentioned that the headquarters moved from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then there was the evangelization of North Africa. And within a couple of centuries, the headquarters of the church was in Alexandria, in North Africa, not even in Antioch anymore. Kept spiraling. And fortunately, it kept spiraling because it finally spiraled to us. And that's why we have the gospel. So has it happened before? My friends, the mountain of exclusion for Gentiles entering the church was much higher than the mountain we have to scale to fully embrace LGBTQ plus brothers and sisters in our fellowship. There were harsh Old Testament laws designed to keep God's covenant people from co-mingling with non-Jews, kosher laws about food, clothing, rituals, language, about just about everything. And they were so locked into this prohibition that it took acts of God, radical acts of God, visions, persecution, drastic circumstances over a period of years for God to force them to spiral outward instead of spiraling back inward to their comfort zone in their circle of nearness. Ironically, 
within a generation, the church became predominantly Gentile, and sooner or later, the church systematically excluded Jews, and anti-Semitism became one of the great sins of Christianity. But that's another story. Gender relationships are a big part of our lives. They matter to our fulfillment, fulfillment as persons, but they aren't the whole definition of who we are. God knows that person, and we want to know that person who is open to God. I don't know how the next generation will handle ABC's journey, but I anticipate for myself and the people in this congregation a time when a person's gender won't be the first thing we see in our relationships in the church fellowship. That in the Lord, we will simply embrace each other as individuals trying to make it through a tough world and needing each other's help. With the help of God and one another who share faith in him, we will love each other into the kingdom and into eternity. Thank you and God bless you. As always, we'd like to invite you for this season to join us online at altadenabaptist.org or our public YouTube page every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. for remote worship. All events are suspended right now, but if you need prayer, please reach out to us at altabapprayer at aol.com. And again, we pray God's blessings on you this week.